Hey, it's Lou here, and welcome to the third episode of a four-part collaboration between Shade and Convergence, the South London Gallery's platform for critical conversations, screenings, and written commissions. Today, I'm in conversation with Season Butler. Season is a writer, performance artist, and teacher, and her debut novel, Signet, was published in 2020. So let's launch into the conversation. I hope you enjoy. So, hey, Season, thank you so much for joining our conversation at the South London Gallery today. Thank you. I'm really, really pleased to be speaking with you this morning. Well, in preparation for this conversation, I was really enamoured by an essay that you had written about character, race and empathy in literature and, and how some writers have considered the racial empathy gap while creating their work. Would you mind just telling our listeners a little bit about how you first encountered the racial empathy gap, what the experimenters set out to find in their study and what it seemed to demonstrate that you found useful in your own work? Yeah, absolutely. I first discovered the idea of the racial empathy gap actually through a book controversy. This was a controversy that became known as the Hunger Games racist tweet phenomenon. And I had never read the Hunger Games before, but and I wasn't really active on Twitter then either. But a couple of articles brought this to my attention. So essentially what had happened was, of course, Suzanne Collins' Hunger Games trilogy had a huge readership, a very enthusiastic and loyal readership. And then once it was announced that the books were going to be made into films, there was a huge amount of interest in the casting. Once certain fans became aware that Black and other kinds of non-white actors were being cast in some of their favorite roles, this became a major feature of the online discussion of the casting in the books, or sorry, the, the casting of the adaptations of the books. And some of the tweets and other social media posts were disturbing and really illustrated some things that needed to be brought to light. In particular, there seemed to be some vocal opposition to the casting of Black actors as certain characters who these posters were insisting were not Black in the book. And so I felt like I needed now to read the Hunger Games trilogy and to see how race was dealt with in these Mm -hmm. books that aren't about race, racism, and kind of overcoming white supremacy, but they're very much about class conflict. Mm. And I was surprised to find that characters like Rue and Thresh, who are quite close to the central character, were explicitly labeled as Black on the page, but something made these readers read over them. And to post sometimes really awful things like, okay, call me racist, but once... I saw Rue as a little black girl. I didn't feel as sad when she died. Right. And I mean, this is, that's a classic statement of a racial empathy gap. Yeah. So, so I wanted to look into this phenomenon. So researchers at a university in Italy had this hypothesis that there's something in our brains that block our ability to empathize with non-white people. In the study, they showed a kind of video of human skin and either a neutral stimulus being applied to the skin, so an eraser touching skin, so that's not going to cause any pain, or a needle touching their skin. Mm -hmm. And now when we see someone else experiencing pain, 
the same parts of our brain light up as when we ourselves are experiencing pain. And so that's our empathy, right? Right. What they found was that participants viewing the videos showed a much lower empathetic response to black skin experiencing the painful stimulus Mm -hmm. and a much higher empathetic response to white skin experiencing the painful stimulus. So while there was no correlation between a conscious sense of racial hatred in the test subjects, it was pretty much consistent that the test subjects' unconscious minds were experiencing less empathy towards the pain being experienced on Black skin, on Black bodies. Keeping that like amazing study in mind, which actually blew my mind, actually, and it made me fire off in all kind of ways, thinking about how that affects like our healthcare. You know, predominantly yes. so many, so many things, and we're very aware of the bias within healthcare. But how does that affect literature, and what does that mean for perhaps the the anti racism book list that was so widely circulated last year? You know, in terms of their capacity to actually reach the white audience successfully with their messaging of inclusion and empathy, you know, because that was supposedly the aim of these books is for people to empathise and understand the experiences of people of colour. But then just bearing in mind what you said, I don't know how that can be an effective tool. Yeah, well, the first thing that I come back to is a a really pleasurable thought that the human brain keeps evolving. So we have brain structures that were formed while we were still in utero before we were Mm -hmm. born, Um, but our brain structures continue to evolve. So by our teens and 20s, we actually have parts of our brains that weren't there when we were born. And our brains are are infinitely plastic. And so these things aren't set. The the fact of unconscious bias is set. And actually, bias is a good thing. It means that we don't have to evaluate every single individual thing that we've seen as if we've never seen it before. But the content of that bias is malleable to some extent. And so doing things like committing ourselves to the kinds of content that anti-racist book lists offer us is is part of that process, um, mm-hmm. is, is part of laying down new wiring so that those can be the sort of neuro pathways that our brains go through when we look at things or w- when we read, when we relate to each other. But there's there's something else to say about this as well. We learn who and what to empathize with through practice. So some of our learning takes place on our like conscious cognitive level. So we can read facts and figures. We can take in new information and think that it's really interesting. But that information is getting to our, our cognitive brain, our, our, our active, awake thinking brain, and not necessarily down into the deeper parts of the deeper, older, fight or flight parts of our brains where our biases are. And this is where fiction, the fiction part of the reading list can be really helpful. Another big part of the research that I did in kind of reading and empathy was at first a bit discouraging, and but then I found uh, some glimmers of hope in this. Mm. Narratology is a field where folks study 
how narrative, how stories and storytelling really works on us, like how it operates. And a, a lot of narratologists look at the brain. And what they've noticed is that things we read that set out to kind of teach us a lesson aren't actually that effective in changing our behavior. And, and I think about this a lot when I consider the fact that there are people who watched the same episodes of Sesame Street that I did when I was three, four, five years old. They were watching those same things and, uh, you know, seeing the, the same kind of rainbow mix of children. There are folks who had the same Black History Month lessons, had the same valorization of some of the same Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks figures who are now currently storming the Capitol or, you know, posting dreadful things on social media and, and have taken on these other views. Yeah, yeah. So simply being told that you have to kind of learn a lesson isn't necessarily the best way to teach the lesson. But what does have an effect on our behavior, what does seem to have some potential to affect our behavior, our worldview, and affect what they call pro-social behavior, right? So the opposite of antisocial, is when narratives are really engaging so so it's it's less the direct like think about this now but more like getting totally wrapped up and involved in a story being able to see the world through characters eyes and kind of through a character's experience getting some practice with empathizing with different kinds of people and so when it came to characterization in your in your own novel Signet, how did these considerations that we've just talked about affect the de development of, of your main characters, of Kid, for example? I just wondered how that kind of academic research will uh, affect a work of fiction where the empathy with the characters is of paramount importance, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I did the research part of things at the same time as I was writing Signet. And there there was quite a bit of thought that went into the sorts of characters that I put in and the kind of world that I, I wanted to see if, uh, if I could create here. Uh, there, there was one consideration that I wanted to play with quite a lot when I thought about the, the conflict between the characters in this novel. So so Signet is a coming-of-age novel that follows a 17-year-old Black girl mm. who is uh, stranded on an island that is an old-age separatist community. Mm. So in order to live there, you have to be over 65. She was supposed to just be staying there temporarily with her grandmother, and life happened in big and tragic ways, and she finds herself stranded in a community where she's an outsider. And one of my early readers was curious about how racism was going to appear in this book, because it is a story about, about a Black girl. Yeah. And often we're used to seeing, we're used to seeing race in fiction only really marked in non-white characters. If you want to say a character is white, you just don't say anything about yeah, race yeah, and, yeah, and you're yeah, set. Yeah, yeah. And so, so there's, there's already an expectation that there's going to be some kind of comment on racism once you introduce race at all, which I think is a problem. And then, but also this question of, you know, this is a story about exclusion on the basis of identity. And yet 
racism doesn't seem to be at the center of that. And that was very much a conscious choice. Yeah. So I was interested in something that uh, James Baldwin said about writing his second novel, Giovanni's Room, this sense that as Black writers, we either have a responsibility to attend to or we're limited to Black subjects. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that, that the idea of Black subjects here is a bit of a euphemism of saying racism. And I felt like it's a, a bit of a problem if our stories seem like they have to revolve around racism because that keeps whiteness and white supremacy at the center of the Black imagination as if we don't also have adventures and quirks and foibles and life experience that's not completely focused on getting out from under white folks' thumbs. But at the same time, it doesn't seem in any way like fair or helpful or um, interesting to pretend that white supremacy isn't there, particularly since the major political backdrop of Signet is climate change and climate crisis. And of course, the people who are at the sharpest end of that are the people who are the most socially marginalized, folks in the global South, Black folks, poor folks, disabled folks, older and younger folks. So I, I wanted to decenter whiteness while also having a story where racism is there and is something that's like structuring the problems, but that it doesn't have to be at the center of the question. And, and I love that more and more I'm seeing in television and film and, uh, and in books, stories that aren't just about the whiteness that we're pushing against, but also um, seeing interracial couples that are where both parties are non-white. This question of minoritized or marginalized people and, and how we negotiate solidarity, but also uh, giving each other our own particular space. And so... So those are some of the like complexities and nuances that I wanted to bring in and to be able to show the, um, the development and the journey in the inner world of a young, poor, Black female without always having whiteness be at the center of what she's having to overcome. Yeah, yeah, that's so important, especially for... For younger readers as well, you know, I'm thinking of, of, of my daughter, you know, reading and engaging in, in fiction. To, so to read a character like Kid that has been developed in that way would really resonate with her. And I, I just think that's a, a beautiful, a beautiful way that you've woven. I really hope so. Yeah, it really is. And, and you're talking about, you know, like how TV and film has, has kind of developed somewhat over time it's definitely developed beyond you know what I saw on the TV when I was a child you know and yeah. um, I've been thinking about how you know prominent voices within film and TV and actors and I was thinking particularly of uh, the actor Riz Ahmed who has spoken so eloquently about the subversions of stereotypes within his work and he's very conscious about how he uses himself as a vehicle of storytelling but how he wants to to challenge racial stereotyping and he's been talking about kind of the structures and the development of representation that are involved in stages of storytelling and he was saying that you know when he was first cast in roles he would be cast in what he would consider stereotypical Pakistani 
characters though it may be the the, the taxi driver or mm. you know unfortunately for him you know the terrorist and and that was the kind of the the early stages of well non-representation and he said and then we kind of moved on to sub subverting that stereotype it's like oh you know this may be a racialized character but oh actually they're okay you know they're not Mm. flattering they're just a normal ordinary person that has to be like fed to the audience to sort of maybe move them through the empathy gap slowly and and he's saying you know his idea of of nirvana is when he's cast within a role he wants to play roles where you know his his physical presence is is there and it's stated but he's not pushing against the stereotypes and he's not pushing against whiteness and that tension is not there you know he's playing the role of, of the character and and the story will evolve in a way that he can move beyond his skin colour or how it's seen and I just think that's really interesting because at first I thought well perhaps uh, what you first said about the racial empathy gap that perhaps these structures of representation won't really work but actually when you've talked about the, the the brain is malleable we can change the way that we think and it's just really interesting that that actually that can work and those representations can be powerful then in storytelling that's really positive and so you've just changed my mind on that idea yeah Yeah, stories bring us along you know stories are are an experience and and I definitely don't want to say that that the non-fiction stuff isn't useful and of course you know when we're thinking about overcoming something like racism like white supremacy white body supremacy and and these sorts of big things we we need we need everything we we need all of the different strategies but yeah i definitely think that the stories can be a powerful ongoing way of moving some things forward well that's a beautiful and positive place to leave with that that thought so i really thank you for that season thank you so much for talking with us today absolutely it was such a pleasure thank you